fundamentally, we have to listen to the voice of the patients. We have to create an organization where we have the majority of people working with us who seek out actively, who put processes in place to collect the voice of the patient. Welcome to Humanizing Healthcare, where we talk with innovators and thought leaders who are working to make healthcare experiences more compassionate and rewarding for all. Our host is Chris Malone, founder of Fidelum Health and author of the award-winning book, The Human Brand, how we relate to people, products, and companies. Hi, I'm Chris Malone, and I'll be your host for today's discussion. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Doug Salvador from Bay State Health in Western Massachusetts. Doug wears a number of hats, and his titles include Senior Vice President and Chief Quality Officer for Bay State Health, Chief Medical Officer for Bay State Medical Center, and Professor of Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Welcome to the program, Dr. Salvador. Thanks, Chris. I'm glad to be here. So to get us started, can you tell us a bit about Bay State Health and your roles there? Bay State Health is a small to medium-sized integrated health system in Western Massachusetts. There are four hospitals, a multi-specialty practice group uh, with about 750 physicians, 400 advanced practice professionals, a regional health plan, a home health agency, hospice, um, and uh, a large captive multi-line insurance company. We have uh, a medical school within a medical school program with the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School, about 275 Bay State residents and fellows, about 13,000 employees, students and trainees of nursing and every allied health field. I've been here at Bay State for 10 years, and I currently hold the titles of Chief Quality Officer for the system and Chief Medical Officer at our Academic Tertiary Care Center in Springfield. Wow. So you've got quite an impressive background and have studied extensively in public health and patient safety. I'm wondering, is there a story you can share about how you chose a career in healthcare and the journey that ultimately led you to this work you're doing now? Sure. Thanks uh, for asking about my background. So, you know, first-generation American, I grew up uh, uh, son of a a concrete construction laborer and a a homemaker uh, on Long Island, and uh, ultimately went to college to be an engineer. And I was on a PhD engineering track until I sort of decided that I wanted the instant gratification of seeing patients one by one. So I I ended up in med school. And uh, when I got there, I was um, immediately enamored with um, the diagnostic process. Um, uh, The the best diagnosticians in the hospital were the infectious disease docs, and uh, that's who I wanted to be. It was also an incredibly uh, exciting time. New HIV medications were coming on the market. We were seeing patients uh, literally rise from the grave uh, who had previously um, had been given death sentences. So I, I continued on and did my infectious disease training after, after, uh, uh, internal medicine residency. And I was on an HIV clinical trials path. And that's really when um, I, I, again, looked at what the future could hold. Uh, I was very interested in science and epidemiology and data. And I took uh, an MPH uh, a course in quality and patient safety and kind of the lights went on. It was, okay, I can use the um, 
the scientific method, uh, generate hypotheses, collect data, test them out. Uh, but now we're making care better tomorrow and next week, um, not enrolling patients in a trial for three years and, and analyzing the data and hopefully publishing something that'll improve uh, patients' outcomes. And 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 that bug that I caught that so many others have in quality and patient safety has really led me to the observations that um, uh, the thing that harms uh, the most patients the most severely is really diagnostic error. Um, and I've committed a lot of my career since then to trying to build systems to improve diagnosis. Wow. So that's a remarkable journey. So given all of that, and from your perspective, kind of in the broadest sense, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing healthcare today? Is it diagnostic issues like you mentioned, or are there other things as well? Lots of challenges, Chris. One of the most acute challenges I think we feel in the health system today is that we just simply are not meeting or cannot meet the needs of our patients and communities. Um, you know, we we ascribe that to staffing. We ascribe it to um, increased need. We ascribe it to uh, uh, disconnections and fragmentation of the system, but at the end of the day, we're not able to meet the needs of our our, our patients and communities, and that that's a massive, massive challenge for all of us. I think that um, I would categorize uh, one of the big challenges as the incentive system. Mm. Uh, what I see over the last several years is nonprofit health systems uh, getting a shrinking pie. Um, uh, of reimbursement to care for um, the the sort of sickest and maybe the most um, resource intensive group of patients, and I think that contributes to that first one. And so we see the proliferation of for profit and venture capital funded physician groups, uh, payviders, uh, others um, that are taking more and more of the the care. Um, you know, I, I'm not trying to. Uh, be political at all. I'm just just saying that if you're in that nonprofit health system world, um, our incentive is really to look more like those for-profit organizations and the organization that decides to invest more heavily in patient safety really is going to lose that financial game in today's world. And, and I think that incentive system is really important for it to change for us to really um, uh, do things a lot better. I would categorize one of the large problems is that we're still very, very provider centric in in the healthcare world. That um, we talk a lot about patient centeredness, but what I see are families and patients who are struggling to work around our schedules, our rules, the system we've set up, and so we've just not um, yet been able to become flexible enough to kind of uh, bend to the needs of our patients and families and communities. And then I, I don't think you can uh, put a list together of challenges out there today without including health equity, that this is just this massive uh, bef before now underground problem that, that we haven't understood, that we haven't admitted, that we haven't worked on. And the more we dig into it, the more we, we find um, really unacceptable conditions that we have to change. Um, and in fact, we can't achieve the outcomes uh, we're learning uh, without addressing health equity head on. And that's a massive challenge. Yeah, no question about it. No question about it. 
Now, I also understand that in addition to your other responsibilities, you also have oversight of patient experience at Bay State. I'm wondering how are you thinking about connecting the patient experience with the kind of outcomes and other challenges that you just mentioned? So that's a new thing for me this year. Um, Previously, the the Department of the Division of Healthcare Quality, which I oversee, really had the patient um, safety, the quality, um, the infection control, the med staff, you know, medical affairs kinds of functions within it. And I was not a prime, I didn't have primary oversight for patient experience. So I'm learning. Uh, I've not not had that um, uh, in in my portfolio in the past. Um, I obviously have been in healthcare for a long time, as you know, so I have opinions. Um, but I, I would say that um, uh, we're, you know, I, I don't have a fully formed vision yet. Um, uh, but I do think uh, there are certain things that that observations I've made, beliefs I have. I think this issue of trust that you uh, talk about and have studied and 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 uh, speak about so eloquently, have written about, um, is is core and and central to to what we need to do differently. Um, I think that we dabble, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, in trust-building structures and trust-building activities and trust-building um, um, uh, relationships, but we're not systematically creating that, and that's not the design that we have in place right now. Um, and, and, you know, there's lots of reasons for that, but I, I think the idea of um, how do we think about reliably delivering a patient experience in, in a more similar way to the way we think about reliably delivering a uh, patient safety prevention bundle and including those accountability structures, including the um, principles of change management and, and how do we inspire more people um, uh, to, to be willing to get out of the comfort zone of our provider-centric world and to become more flexible? And then how do we create structures and supports and, and systems around them to make that possible for them to do and not uh, so extraordinarily difficult that we burn everyone out in five minutes? Right. Well, that was going to be the second part of my question, which is how do we address building trust with the care team as well? And uh, so that it's a two-way street, not just one that is looking at the patient side of the equation. I don't want to pretend I have you know the answers there or or to to get preachy. Um, it is rough, right? So so times when I get frustrated or when you know I hear leaders in the organization who have non-clinical departments who talk about you know their good leadership and the way things are going, and you know my knee-jerk response is, well, you don't have employees who are being bit on, kicked at, um, insulted, abused um, as a as a weekly and a daily course of work when they come in, um, and and um, I think that it, it's really difficult. That, you know that there's there's what I've seen over the last several years, much more of a staff versus patients dynamic in certain areas that you know really just can't be there if we're going to achieve this promise. If we're going to get to that patient experience, we've got to figure out a way to understand each other better, you know, manage those behaviors better, be able to um, 
flip that dynamic from what it is. I don't have all the answers, but but I do think we've got to tackle that and work on that if we're going to be successful in creating an experience where people are going to want to come to work, they're going to feel protected and safe at work, feel like they can do their best work because um, we don't have that right now. Got it. So, Doug, you know, after we finish our conversation today, I'm thinking I'll send you a survey about your experience in this discussion and ask how that worked out for you. Is that going to be a helpful way for us to improve? What's your thought on the, the degree to which we're asking both patients and care team members for feedback on, on a continuous basis like this? You know, again, I, I'm learning and I'm learning from you and your colleagues and others that I've been talking to this year, which has confirmed for me that we're just measuring the wrong things right today. Um, that, you know, that has come um, about maybe um, the most clearly in CG caps in the outpatient world where we've got these physician ratings that are skewed to the right and we've got um, we're, we're harassing people to you know get from 93% to 96% which um, there's evidence that shows may actually result in people delivering worse care um, and so that that's sort of the highlight example that exists in the world today but I think as I've learned from you and others, when we just measure transactional um, uh, kind of feelings about um, one transaction after the other, we're, we're missing out on perhaps the essence of uh, a relationship, perhaps the essence of what uh, people want um, caregivers and a healthcare uh, organization to be for them. No, I think it's a great observation. And your point about transactional versus relationship-oriented, I think, is really the point. I think all the evidence that we've seen suggests that patients really do want to have a relationship with their primary care providers and specialists and so forth. But so much of what has become the norm in healthcare is so much more transaction-related, and that is kind of really watering down those relationships. But in our earlier conversations, I learned about the care program that you created at Bay State, and I understand it's spreading successfully across the state. Can you tell us about that program and how it's making healthcare more human at Bay State? So I, I didn't create it. Um, it was here, okay. and, and it was one of the attractors for me to, to come here. Okay. Um, uh, but I, I'm certainly a champion for it, and, and previously coming to Bay State, I was a champion for moving in that direction. So care for us means care, communication, apology, and resolution, and it's it's a CR pr P program. We really don't use the disclosure and apology kind of moniker anymore. It, it, it's too sort of narrow and, and doesn't really do justice to the fact that this is really all about the communication piece. And so, uh, you know, we're just, you know, we, we've just had previous leaders, um, my predecessor, Evan Benjamin, among uh, chief among them, who've, who started out with a, a uh, implementation grant from HRQ along with Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in our state. They set out to put in place a new program with some process steps that was designed to look at every case every time when uh, patients have an unexpected outcome, when um, uh, families are um, uh, dissatisfied with their care, have questions about the quality of care that happened, whether errors occurred and we would review them. Um, we would immediately reach out to those family members, have a liaison from our patient relations department, uh, let them know that we're reviewing the case and we come back to them with a conversation. In the research study, 
over three years, over a thousand uh, cases that were reviewed in in these uh, two medical centers, additionally to community hospitals affiliated with them. Uh, what we really saw was that it was about 12% of those cases that fit into the category, um, our definition of uh, the care received uh, was not, didn't meet the standard of care, was not reasonable. And, and that gap caused harm. When that happened, we had uh, a protocol for apologizing, um, for answering questions that patients and families had, and then entering into an early resolution process where appropriate, if that's what families wanted. And then we also looked at alternative ways to engage that patient and family in being part of the solution. We owed them, what are we doing about this so this doesn't happen again to someone else? And so we've been doing that for 10 years. And and uh, the initial people who started the study created uh, what was initially called MACRAMI, a statewide collaborative with support from uh, the hospital association, the, the medical uh, societies, um, some some insurers, and very early on included the plaintiff's attorneys from these um, uh, law firms uh, that, that uh, did this work. And so over that 10 years, uh, we've created resources together. We've created a list of um, lawyers who are willing to engage in this process as opposed to the traditional malpractice process. And uh, we've really got a commitment that's growing. Um, a couple of years, I'm currently the co-chair of that statewide collaborative, which has turned into an advisory group under our quasi-governmental uh, Betsy Lehman Center for Patient Safety in the state of Massachusetts. And uh, we're, we're approaching that tipping point for us of uh, 50% of the hospitals in the state signing on to uh, these processes. Uh, if you're in it and you participate in the collaborative, you are uh, required to submit data on the number of cases and resolutions. We, we share comparative data within the collaborative. Um, and we do trainings for new uh, organizations, um, and we're on a mission really to get uh, every single healthcare provider in the state of Massachusetts to use this method. We're not alone. There are hundreds of hospitals in, in the country who are uh, using this, but the current reality is the vast majority of hospitals might say they're using an apology and disclosure uh, uh, program, but most most of the time when we look under the hood, it's the obvious cases when patients and everyone else knew that there was an error that caused harm where they fall on their sword and apologize and potentially uh, do early compensation. It's not the cases where we might be doing our usual reviews within the hospital. We find out we did something wrong when no one knew about it. Then we pick up the phone and call someone and say, hey, we need to talk to you about the care of your loved one. Um, and 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 then we uh, admit and apologize the errors that we made. We've done that multiple times here, and that's um, uh, you know that's a real program. Every case, every time, collecting the data, putting the processes in place, and and more and more uh, places are committed to that. That must really do a lot of good to not only building trust with patients, but rebuilding it with those whom it's been lost. And so, with that as background, where do you think kind of designing human-centered systems to drive clinical excellence fits in. You've kind of mentioned the phrase socio-technical systems 
in our discussions before. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that and how, whether that contributes to this process of improving quality and avoiding mistakes. When people have asked me for the last 20 years, what's your job? My answer has typically been building learning systems, um, uh, building the capacity within areas of healthcare systems where they have the leadership, the data, the improvement knowledge and capacity, um, and the culture to be able to identify the issues that are um, getting in the way of them giving uh, great care to patients and and learning, asking the right questions and improving and solving those problems. And I've uh, carried the banner of creating those learning systems, um, carried the banner of patient safety in doing that. And that's because of my particular background. But ultimately, it's really about creating a highly functional, operationally sound, uh, strongly led, uh, evidence-based, and and data-driven organization. And so we've talked about that so much in patient safety, right, in the quality world. We've talked about spreading capacity. We've talked about whole system quality. We've talked about safety systems uh, that we want to put in place. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, when we look at the results in the healthcare system that I work in and across the country, we've not achieved it. And so kind of why is that and how do we sort of spread it? We're seeing more and more organizations with the financial pressures and the documented decrement in patient safety across the country during the pandemic recommit to systems like a daily management system, a high reliability organization um, model. And many uh, groups do that in different ways. Um, we're on that journey at Bay State um, Health, and we made a decision during the pandemic. Uh, it was really while we were staring the Omicron wave um, uh, in the face coming at us that we were going to move forward and not yet again say, oh, it's not the right time. And uh, thus far, over a little bit less than two years, we've implemented a fairly typical daily management, uh, lean type daily management system um, in four hospitals um, and all the clinical areas, many of the non-clinical support areas, basically fully implemented in two years. These systems include tiered huddles um, uh, at each of the areas twice a day so that teams can stop and say, what's going to get in the way of us delivering good care today? Uh, What problems do we have that we can solve ourselves and need to work on? Which ones do we need to escalate uh, somewhere else to get solutions for? And how did we do yesterday? And then um, uh, within, uh, in addition to that, uh, we, we, we sort of have these escalating tiered huddles so that things that need to move up in the organization can very quickly. Um, those huddles are all associated with um, transparency, with boards, or digital boards that that um, describe the issues that are at play, describe current performance, um, and create an accountability structure, both for solving individual issues and for the overall performance scores that we have. And then uh, in addition, we try and address some of the humanizing healthcare elements that you talk so much about through our leadership rounding, right? So we know from the work of Brian Sexton and Alan Frankel and others and, and that you know, getting out there and delivering certain leadership um, behaviors when we're out there um, 
makes a huge difference in people feeling burnt out or feeling supported or, you know, so it's getting out there on a regular basis. We do that in pairs of leaders uh, right after a tier three huddle on certain days of the week. And, you know, we, we've had a training program so that we don't have people going out there trying to catch folks doing things wrong or telling them what, what to do or feeling like they have to fix every problem that they hear immediately. But, but just being with people, getting to know them, understanding what are the real issues that happen uh, to, to kind of flatten that sort of hierarchy. So, so we've, we've successfully put that in place in our system in a way that um, has surprised me in how far we've come. There's lots of places that have put these systems in place, and, and I've been to a number of them where they haven't actually changed the outcomes. They have their check the box exercises. People go out, people go to the meetings, they're not engaged. They don't engage the staff. They don't inspire the staff to deliver um, a different level of performance. We, we talk about the two projects for improvement that exist on every unit of every board in the, in the system now. And, and many of those are experience type projects where we're following some data and the goal here is reliability. We want to deliver the little things for every patient every day on every shift, because that's really the hallmark of clinical excellence. And so, so using those accountability structures, the measurement tools to really focus on are we delivering a great patient experience? Everything from on this unit, our goal is when there's a behavioral issue and, and it, uh, a patient's agitated or abusive or aggressive, we're going to institute some basic quality improvement and, and follow-up systems around huddling afterwards about asking the questions, did we de-escalate in the way we were trained and did it work and what can we do better, potentially including patients in a debriefing so we hear their viewpoint um, in, in those instances to, and, and, and getting that information up on the board and engaging people and saying that we can do better. How do we inspire some of the frontline folks to be champions for doing that? Um, through a structure like that that addresses kind of not just a technical process, uh, but includes those other socio-technical um, elements such as leadership and culture and, 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 and um, really the interface with technology as well. Wow. You've got a lot of really great stuff going on. It's really impressive. What are some of the things that have you most excited right now of all the things that you are either leading, working on, or see going on in the environment? We don't have um, the results we want to have, right? The the key to all of this is really never being satisfied, but but we're not doing well. As I said, this, the starting point was we're not meeting the needs of our, our community. I'm excited in this daily management system work because I'm starting to see the engagement um, that was missing so much in the pandemic. Um, I, I've contended for most of my career that the antidote to burnout in physicians is really quality improvement work. That when you feel isolated, you feel like you're out of control and you're just being told what to do and you've got too much work to do um, and it doesn't feel worth it. Uh, what I've seen change that around is being part of an interdisciplinary team where you've got other people working with you to solve a problem, where you have some time set aside to to actually 
control your environment, change the process, and that you're following data that tells you and you can see clearly, look, I'm, I'm delivering better care now. That's what I've seen take, you know, a mid-career doc who's ready to hang up the stethoscope and then, and then turn around and like coming to work again. And so we've just recently done our, you know, uh, over the summer, our immediate post-implementation uh, employee engagement survey and culture safety survey through our vendor, Prescani. And we've been able to see that despite us having, you know, poor overall engagement scores as it relates to the rest of the country, we're, we're getting closer to the 50th percentile when you compare us to the Northeast, you know, uh, hospitals, but we're still not, um, you know, a leader there. But if you look at the questions this year that ask, you know, do you have a voice here? Does, does, do your ideas matter? Um, and do you get recognized? We're in the 70th percentile, and that's a far cry from where we were a year ago. And, and that's right. part of what this system was designed to do. And so when I go out and, and, and watch a tier one huddle and I see five night nurses rushing to share a good catch or or share a recognition of one of their colleagues or or call out uh, an issue that needs to be escalated that's getting in the way of giving them, then I know we're on the right track and we're, we're getting there. And we're also starting to see in pockets of the organization some real shifts in things like pressure injury rates. I see uh, on the call right now is, is our um, nursing director of our medical ICUs, Jonathan Recchi. And, and his area using the daily management system has produced reductions in pressure injuries that I haven't seen in 10 years here. Um, and, and so starting to see some of the outcome changes is giving me a lot of hope. That's terrific. So given what you've seen so far, what advice would you offer to other leaders who are working to improve patient experience, staff engagement, clinical quality? Are there any principles or starting points that you would suggest? I think that this is this whole system transformation is the holy grail for everybody who's trying to do quality improvement, patient safety, patient experience work. And I've been at this type of work for 20 years. And this is the first time I feel like we actually have a shot at doing that system-wide transformation. Many of the people on the call, many others doing this kind of work have have successfully done this in pockets in an OR and a cath lab and an endocrinology clinic and a primary care practice. But to really do it across the board is what we're is what I think holds the promise for us to really shift the dynamic and 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 deliver the care we want to deliver. And and to do that, um, people talk a lot about the leadership um, that's necessary. And I think one of the fortunate things for me is I was in a position two and a half years ago where we had a leadership team that was completely aligned and said, we're going to do this and declared to the organization, we're going to do this across the whole organization. And I've not been in an organization as part of a leadership team that was willing to do that. And that was some of the magic of, of you know, the, the pandemic and, and, and how we all reacted and worked together during it. Um, and now as we're built, as we built momentum, it feels like that's difficult um, to stop. And, 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 and that's part of the excitement. Um, but I do think there, you know, um, there needs to be that um, kind of leadership commitment, and there are ways that you and others can work to build that. 
up to demonstrate to others that it's you know it's 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 a hard commitment to make but it's worth it um um and then and then just support the heck out of the the teams when you start so that they can be successful thank you that's helpful now let's take a few questions from those listening remotely. Question for Dr. Mike Woodruff. He says, thanks for the great discussion. You mentioned the imperative for health organizations to get more flexible to meet parents, families, and communities where they need to be met. How do organizations make this a leadership priority? It's hard. Um, I've often thought, and 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 you know, now that that I'm I'm I have some ownership, I've often thought what what we need to do is we need to take our biggest conference room. And we need to put all of the senior leaders of the organization on the stage and invite the entire community and give the microphones to the community and 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 tell the leaders that we're not allowed to speak for the next three hours and just listen. And, and I think that fundamentally, we have to listen to the voice of the patients. Um, we have to create an organization where we have the majority of people working with us who want, who seek out actively, who put processes in place to collect the voice of the patient. And um, and we struggle with that. Um, and we have more commitment and, and we work towards meeting those needs. And coming out of the pandemic, we've heard from nurses who say, you know, do we have to go, you know, back to having visitor hours be be wide open again, right? So some people who who felt like they were more efficient and got through their work of the day without patients and families, we know that's um, dangerous, right? It, we, we saw how many patients got harmed because they didn't have their loved ones and advocates there with them. Um, so, so we've got to figure out a way to demonstrate the value of, of, of listening to the voice of patients to every single person. Um, and again, I think about it in the same way uh, as, as the, the patient safety improvement project or the, or the quality improvement project. We've got to inject reliability. We've got to inspire folks. We've got to create champions and we've got to demonstrate that it works because I, 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 those of us you know, on the call really believe that it does. Yeah. You mentioned the importance of involvement of patient and families. I'm wondering where do patient and family advisory councils come in? Do you think they play a role um, in facilitating some of this in addition to the uh, individual feedback? We've got to have a, a, a omni-channel or a multi-channel or, or multiple ways to listen to the voice of the patients. Um, I, I think that I, I'm, as I've talked to people, I'm growing in my belief that it's not going to be this, you know, monolithic PFAC that um, makes decisions for, creates input for a whole organization, but it's going to be the um, birthing center PFAC that, you know, consists of, of, of birthing people who had their babies at that birthing center who are going to be able to take that lived experience and and provide you know essential input on how to make it better. I'm more intrigued by sort of local um, uh, use of of patients who have experience in that particular condition or specialty or area, and whether we call them PFACs. Um, whether we have sort of an ad hoc on-call group of advisors that we can reach out to by virtual meeting like this, 
or because they meet every month or because we invite them to come onto the unit um, and get involved in the care processes and talk to our patients um, and our staff. I, I think, um, you know, PFAC in the way that many organizations create monolithic P- PFACs that, that I think too often get issues run in front of them for an up or down vote or, or an opinion that they're not, they don't really have the lived experience collectively to comment on. Um, I, I worry that that's um, a, a very useful way to get the, um, the, the, the patient voice, but I think we're going to have lots, we're going to need lots of different ways to listen to the patient voice. That certainly makes sense. Hey, I'm seeing a little bit more activity in the chat. It was asking about how do we incorporate provider wellness into all the strategies we've been talking about thus far? Yeah, again, I don't have the answer. I have uh, some ideas and we're going to need to try to do that. Um, we've, most organizations um, like us have grown provider wellness uh, strategies and structures and leadership. We have provider wellness councils within our multi-specialty practice group. We have some interdisciplinary uh, uh, versions. We have some nursing centered and specific things that we're doing um, uh, for wellness. Um, ultimately, one message I wanted to leave the group with today was really about integrating these pieces, right? So um, a comprehensive patient safety program has to have peer support as part of it, right? So so we have a robust support system within our insurance company so that when a physician has a claim against them and starting that process, another physician who's been through that in the past gets paired with them as a mentor. On the floors, we have a robust peer support program that not only delivers individual peer support, but also group debriefings and and group support um, activities after a bad outcome, an emotional case, um, uh, uh, whatever support folks need. And then, you know, I've often said, like, you know, we do root cause analysis when something goes wrong and we close the door and we make this big disclaimer, you know, everything in here stays in here, you know, but that's not true, right? Those two people sitting next to each other have to go work tomorrow on the same shift with patients. And they're going to remember what somebody said in the room if we don't support them. Right. And, and, and so when you think about what a provider wellness program uh, provides, what a peer support program provides, that's administered by a patient safety uh, group, um, what, the transparency and the rounding support from leadership can provide to people who are struggling through uh, day-to-day issues, what, what the escalation process where problems actually get owned by leaders who have the ability to fix them and we hold ourselves accountable to doing that uh, can do for sort of people. And then, you know, you, know you, you include the patients in that loop and start to understand um, we've got patients who are having experiences that that aren't what we'd want them to have. Are we going to listen to them? Are we going to hold ourselves accountable together with them for changing that environment, changing the experience? Um, I, I think that um, I think we have to figure out how to incorporate all these things into one large system that works better than the one we have. Well, that brings us to my favorite final question, which is: Do you have a favorite quote, and if so, what is it and why? I am a continuous quality improvement. Uh, guy, and I have one quote that I've kept with me uh, really since um, residency, 
and and uh, it's it's right up hanging on on my desk here, and I'll just read it. Uh, it's entitled "A Little Courage." A great deal of talent is lost in the world for want of a little courage. Every day sends to their graves obscure men and women whom timidity prevented from making a first effort, who had they been induced to begin, would in all probability have gone to great lengths in the career of fame. The fact is that to do anything in the world worth doing, we must not stand back shivering and think of the cold and danger, but jump in and scramble through as best we can. Outstanding. Dr. Salvador, we can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. It's inspiring to hear what's been happening at Bay State Health and how you are making an impact in the world. We look forward to hearing more about your progress in the future. To our listeners today, thank you for joining us. We hope you found our discussion informative and inspiring. Be sure to join us for our next Humanizing Healthcare discussion. We'll be talking to Doug Johnson, Patient Experience Officer at North Shore Emhurst Health. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanizing Healthcare, please give it a rating, share it with others, and follow us at Fidelum Health on LinkedIn. And make sure you join us next time as we share more insights from another inspiring healthcare leader and innovator.